Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa. Part of the District of Wonders network. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. I'm pointing them to the This is the Starship Sova. Everybody welcome. Hello and welcome to show 704. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone. Hope everyone is fine and dandy. To be honest, we are going through in the UK a such strange, I know I'm guessing it's happening all over the world at different times, but the such strange weathers. I mean, UK is tiny, do you know what I mean? We're a little speck on the on the world map, but half of our country is in like eight degrees. The rest, in, in it's split right down the middle, is in like minus six. It's just, and if you're a gardener like myself, you're battling all the time, all the time. But what a strange time, and it's just bizarre. And it was freezing last night, and I've woke up this morning there, and it's 8 degrees. It's just ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. Anyone else is finding it a bit strange these days in the UK, let us know. I'll tell you what's coming today's show. We have the main fiction, which is Rock Hoppers by Ramiz Joachim. I think that's how you pronounce it, Razim. And it's narrated by Christina M. Rao. And we have our very own Amy H. Sturgis. We're looking back at genre history. That's all coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So like I say, the main fiction is Rock Hoppers by Ramin Joachim. A one-time engineer and educator. Ramin works favours the darker side of speculative fiction. But mostly he writes about hope including More Than Trinkets, named as one of Tor.com's must-read speculative short fiction. You'll find more of his stories in Hidden Realms from Flame Tree Press, Sci-Fi Journal, Transducer, Traveller's Lounge, and many others. Discover more of his webs on his website, Joachim.com, or on Twitter, Ramiz Joachim. And there's links there in the bio as well. Now, this story is an original to Starship Sova as well. It is narrated, like I mentioned, Christina M. Rao. 
Christina is the author of the 2021 poetry collection What We Do to Make Us Whole, Alien Buddha Press, and the Elgin Award-winning Sci-Fi Femme Poetry Collection, Liberating the Astronauts, Aqueduct Press, and the chapbook Wake, Breathe, Move by Finishing Line Press, and for the girls, Dancing Girl Press. She's currently serving as Port-in-Residence for the Cedemia Port-in-Residence for Oceanside Library, and was named... Long Island Port of the Year 2020 by the Walt Whitman Birthplace Association. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Rockhoppers by Ramez Joachim. The micrometeorite passed through Mama at 30 clicks per second. The suit quickly repaired itself, sealing breaches front and back, but it could do nothing for the broken human inside. A one in a billion, Caïs insisted as if the unlikelihood would make me feel any better. Back inside the Sinbad and freed from her suit, Mama looked like she was sleeping, aside from a charred depression the size of an iris on her left temple near the hairline. I busied myself with maintenance chores all the way to Triton. After the funeral, once we'd pushed off on our way back to the Kuiper Belt, I retreated to my bunk, cradled the stainless steel urn, and cried. In her will... Mama wanted her ashes scattered at home. Only, unless she meant to clog the Sinbad's air filters with her remains, I had no idea what other home she meant. For as long as I lived, she'd had none other. You okay, boss? Wardani asked, his sunken eyes unblinking. Don't call me that, I snapped, and immediately regretted it. Seeing the great ape flinch undammed my waterworks all over again. I threw myself into his waiting arms. The hyper-gorilla may have nominally been the Sinbad's mechanic, but to me, he was so much more. The childhood's playmate who always let me win. The protector who shielded me from Mama's wrath, even when I'd earned it. And the best friend who'd never once hurt me. Every ship needs a boss, Mordani said, patting my back gingerly, ever conscious of his great strength. I drew away. I don't want it. Who else? he asked with upraised palms and eyebrows. I never expected to take over Mama's rock hopper, the Sinbad. She hoped I would, eventually, but accepted that I had a different future laid out for myself, one that didn't include trawling the unchartered Kuiper belt for that mythical one, the one rock made of the right stuff, found at the right time to fetch a king's ransom on the inner system's commodities markets, one lucky strike to fix all that's wrong with the Sinbad, so it reached further, hopped between rocks faster, in pursuit of the next one, then the next. That's all Mama wanted out of her life. I wanted clean air, free of Sinbad's perpetual stench of hot metal, grease, and stale primate sweat, endless sunshine on my face, and a distant, indistinct horizon. Instead, Mama went and got herself killed and left me saddled with the Sinbad, its sentient proxy, Caïs, and Wardani. The ship I could sell. But how does one go about shedding family? Even if Caïs was right, and Mama's death was instantaneous and painless, mine would be neither. It'd be drawn out and tortured, meted out in decades, watching helplessly as my grief turned into a simmering resentment that hollowed me from the inside out. I slathered degreaser on the controller's copper contacts and shoved it back into its socket. Caïs, how's that looking? Caïs took a beat to respond. No change, Zora. 
Language, young lady, Wardani rumbled from somewhere aft. The Waldo arms won't sink, and we've run out of spares, I complained to no one in particular. We're already in the hole for the trip back to Triton's for Mama's funeral. If we head back again so soon, we might as well call it a day and hand the Sinbad to the creditors. The rhythmic thuds of Wardani's walk increased in volume until he was hanging from the grate overhead. He insisted the hand-over-hand locomotion when we weren't under thrust had nothing to do with guerrilla instincts and everything to do with efficiency. Hardwire the Waldos for manual control? No need. I yanked the controller block out and resumed my cleaning. It's just a bad contact. I slotted the controller back into place. Kais, how about now? No change, Zora, Kais said, waited a moment and added. We haven't had a high-value spectroscopic assay in weeks. Don't you think the repairs could wait until we've made a few cataloging runs? Sitting idle earns us nothing. The Sinbad couldn't survive on the pittance the UN paid for specifications. Coordinates, trajectory, dimensions, rotation, albedo, and so on, of previously uncatalogued bodies in the belt, but it helped defray operating costs. What do you think, boss? Mordani asked deflecting my ire with the slightest ripple of his brow ridge. If I was indeed boss, why shouldn't I cuss out loud if I felt like it? Fine. I slammed the controller into its socket and secured the hatch. Start a catalog run, then. I'm going to bed. Yet another problem we decided to live with rather than fix. I wondered if we'd be better off struck down by a sudden catastrophic failure, like a meteorite through the head, than this death of a thousand cuts. How much of the Sinbad had to stop working before it didn't matter anymore? The Sinbad spine sprouted half a dozen modules, with a command capsule on one end and a drive assembly on the other. Over time, finances tightened and crewmates left, until there were only three of us left. Mama sealed off the modules to conserve air and heat, and we made do with the bunks at the rear of the command capsule. I slept in the one above hers, aside from three days when I turned twelve and after an argument, moved a hammock next to Wardani's. Three nights of his snoring, and I moved right back. Mama never said a word, and I never again asked why Wardani slept so far away from us. I had just strapped myself in for some much-needed shut-eye when Kais buzzed me on comms. Zora, you'll want to see this. In the command capsule, Wardani held on to a strap with one hand and pointed at a screen with the other. What am I looking at? I asked as I scanned the numbers. No one answered. No one had to. This can't be right. Unconsciously, my finger ran down the lines on the screen. When I realized that I'd touched the surface, my hand recoiled as if zapped, and I glanced behind me, bracing for a barbed rejoinder from Mama for leaving fingerprints all over the glass. Kais, turn around for another pass-by. I read the provisional catalog number we'd just assigned the unidentified rock. It's a waste of time, Zora. It has to be an assay error, Kais said. Nothing this large of this composition could have been missed for this long. I checked reactor fuel levels. Tight, but not impossible. Not if the laser assays were accurate. Or it could be an 84 kilometers in diameter spheroid of the most valuable resource in the universe. According to a single layer assay, Kais protested. Which is why we need a subsurface sample. Wardani, with the Waldo arms out of commission, I'll need your help getting the drone ready, I said. 
I don't want to spend my whole life rock hopping, building a database for others to get rich off. This might be our own mini Enceladus, the one Mama spent her life chasing, our ticket out of here. Your Mama never wanted to leave, Thais said. Well, it's what I want, I said, and kicked off a bulkhead heading aft, past a wide-eyed Wardani who couldn't help but grin back at me. Once ready, the fist-sized drone dropped from the Sinbad and made contact with the surface. It drilled past the soot cover and returned with a subsurface sample for detailed analysis. Nearly pure water ice. I yelped for joy and kissed Wardani's cheek. I'll call it Monquez. Savior, Caiz said, translating from my mother's native tongue. If ever we needed saving, right? I said. Unsurprisingly, that wasn't how Caiz saw it. The hollow shows, casting sentient machines as villains, make me laugh. I'd never known anyone who's more of a stickler for the rules, any rules, than Caiz. The UN Prospecting Charter explicitly excludes water from claimable prospecting rights. Merely failing to report this Monquez could land you and Wardani in a penal mine and me counting drums in a Jovian refinery, wishing they'd just turn me off instead. It's not a minor administrative snafu settled with a fine. Not that we could afford that either. It's a serious crime and for good reason. Without water, there'd be no ablative ice shields protecting light chasers against high-energy particles beyond the heliosphere. I know all that, I said. Caiz ignored me. Or oxygen to breathe, or hydrogen to fuel reactors. And without these, there'd be no reaching for new stars, and humanity might as well have stayed earthbound. As much as I resented Caiz's lectures, sometimes it took one to crystallize what I hoped to avoid. It's not fair. We would have been better off had Monquez's composition been anything else. Neodymium, or europium, or even platinum. Nowhere near as valuable as water, sure, but at least then we could have sold the rights for a decent sum that wouldn't have made us rich, but could have kept the Sinbad running and the only family I had together. Instead, Monquez had to be a billion times more valuable. So valuable, it was worthless. It simply wasn't fair. Shouldn't we at least get a finder's fee? Caiz didn't bother answering that. How long before we have to report it? We'll have to purge the catalog buffers eventually, or risk a query from a data keeper, Caiz said. I assume you'd rather avoid that sort of official scrutiny now that you're considering a life of crime? Why can't we empty the buffers but omit the Monquez data? Even as I said it, I could see the problem. The cataloging cores were heavily encrypted, carried by rock harbors but owned and controlled by the UN. A lack of trust in our integrity I found insulting. Never mind. Wardani grunted. I got work to do. Wait, I called after him. What should I do? Wardani shrugged. What would Farida do? If only I could turn back time and stop Mama from going outside, or turn the Sinbad on its axis just a few degrees one way or the other, far enough for the space pebble to miss her. Even if it meant trading my dreams for hers and staying on the Sinbad forever. If only I could turn back time and do it all over again. Then it hit me. What if we purged the buffers right here? We're not registering nearby comms relays, Caiz said, ever patient, ever instructive. The data will get lost and scatter, and we'd end up with the same gap in our logs. 
Not if we repeated the scanning run. Only this time, we skip over Monquez, as if it didn't exist, I said. A slightly delayed update shouldn't raise too many red flags, right? Even if that's true, Kai said. It'll consume reaction mass we could ill afford. I called up Sinbad's inventory. We're carrying a matter processor, and I happen to know where to find enough ice to fill the Sinbad's reaction mass tanks to the brim. How did Mama figure out what to do after she took command of the Sinbad when barely older than me? Unlike her, I had her every tale, admonishment, dream, regret, and mistake to chart my path, though I felt these were icebergs in my path, not lighthouses. After a couple of restless days, jumping every time Caiz started to speak, Mordani found me in the midship gallery, rummaging through drawers of Mama's favorite food pouches. Poached salmon and dill cream sauce with brown rice for something else to eat. After a couple of restless days, jumping every time Caiz started to speak, Mordani found me in the midship gallery, rummaging through drawers of Mama's favorite food pouches. Poached salmon and dill cream sauce with brown rice for something else to eat. Anything else. I found a beef goulash and mashed potato pouch and ripped off the seal to start it reheating. Mordani wiped his palms on the front of his overalls and pulled the pouch from the drawer where he kept his food, even though the beef in my meal had no animal origins any more than Mama's salmon did. Mordani still preferred his single fruit-flavored pastes, so long as it wasn't banana. We ate in silence until Kai startled me. Zora, we're approaching Monquez now. I swallowed a mouthful and squeezed out another before throwing the pouch in the recycler. With Mordani in tow, I headed for the main maintenance hangar. I'll take care of this one, Mordani, I said, and set to picking a suit from the rack. I kept the one Mama wore the day she died locked away, out of view. This is my job, Mordani said, moving past me towards his suit. You can't go out until your suit is fixed, I said. Or, if we get lucky, shell out for a new one. Unlike smart, one-size-fits-all human suits, Mordani's had to be custom-tailored out of old-school materials and parts. A big ask when we couldn't even afford to repair the rip that sidelined him and forced Mama outside. I fixed it. Mordani leaned down to show me the patched breastplate. See? I gripped his hand the way I did as a toddler yet to master movement in zero-g. The adhesive will never hold the pressure. The moment you step outside in this, the patch will fly off. Mordani pulled his hand away and thundered, No! This is my job! I go outside! This is my job! The ferocity of his response took me by surprise. My whole life, Mordani had never been anything but gentle. I never saw him angry, never heard him yell. His calm and calming bass rumble put me to sleep many a night as he struggled to piece together bedtime stories of his invention when Mama refused me one. Hers were always about a young pilot saving a baby gorilla from a lab. His about a baby gorilla rescued by a young pilot. The details varied from one telling to the next, but the ending never did. Wardani must have seen the fright in my eyes, because his ferocious gaze softened instantly. Sorry, didn't mean to scare you, Wardani whispered, his eyes awash with tears. But I must do my job. If I did my job before, Verita would still be here. I threw myself into his embrace. The two of us tumbled into a slow spin, until Wardani reached for a strap and stabilized us. I looked into his eyes, 
and realized Wardani wasn't angry. He was terrified. What happened to Mama is not your fault, I said. Wardani made to look away, but I turned with him to maintain eye contact. Any more than it's mine. I didn't go out either. It's not your job, Wardani rumbled softly. Of course it is. We're all responsible for keeping the Sinbad going, even when it seems hopeless to try, I said. I let Mama go outside, because going outside is nothing to be afraid of. What happened to her was an accident. We mourned her together, until Wardani grunted and brushed off the tears. I promise you'll get a new suit, and we'll go outside together soon, I said, as I suited up. We'll look at the faraway sun and complain about this overbearing know-it-all who irritates us both. Caiz chimed in, as I'd hoped. I heard that. Wardani grinned and hooted, but it sounded forced. By the time I sealed my helmet, Wardani's grin had faded, replaced by an uncertain grimace. I couldn't maneuver the bulky matter processor out of the airlock from inside an Eva rig, so I had to fly the processor down to Monquez with a simple jetpack, trailing the umbilical tubes feeding the Sinbad's nearly dry tanks. Mama's voice in my head exhorted me to go slow. Landbound folks could afford to be careless and cavalier. They had ground to hold them up, air all around to fill their lungs, and sunshine to keep them warm. Those of us who lived in the void had nothing to fall back on, except discipline, good sense, and one another. You hear stories sometimes of people losing it outside on their own, but not me. Space is where I belong. In a flash of insight, I realized... I might enjoy visiting Earth, Mars, or Jupiter, but I'd never be happy anywhere else but out here, living the same life Mama did. I just want to carve out a bit of it for myself, where I can call my own shots far from Mama's shadow. I never expected it to happen so soon, or ever. I gasped and realized I'd been holding my breath. Are you okay, Zora? Caïs asked. I'm fine. Almost there. You'd expect a giant ice ball to shine brightly, but with almost a hand span of fine particulates covering its surface, Monquez appeared as anonymous as the rocks it hit among. As soon as the processor made contact, it fired harpoons into the hard ice, the impact stirring the dust into short-lived eddies that lazily surrendered to Monquez's anemic gravity. I stopped a moment to catch my breath and let the long dormant machine run through its startup diagnostics. Gradually, red status lights flickered to yellow, then a uniform green. I initiated the processor's extraction sequence, untethered myself from its harness, and took a couple of loping bounds away to look up at the Sinbad. Looming overhead, it looked like a comms mast halfway through falling over. A vertigo-inducing image, not helped by the vibrations I felt through my soles of the processor's drills driving into the ice. After twenty minutes, the drilling stopped, and the slow and steady process of heating the ancient ice from its 51 Kelvin up to melting point began. I kept an eye on the progress on my heads-up display, until I was satisfied the heaters weren't going to overshoot and sublimate our treasure into short-lived and useless steam. I could have returned to the Sinbad while the processor finished its work, then traveled down again once the tanks were full to fly it back to the Sinbad. But I decided to wait and explore Monquez instead. Aside from the faint impressions of billion-year-old impact craters, its surface offered few features, and its sky even less. Deep in the belt, anonymous rocks in their eternal procession occluded any hint of Neptune's blue-streaked marble, 
and the distant sun's pinprick of light, only somewhat brighter than the stars, but it was quiet. The only sounds in my ears, those of my breathing, which suited me fine. I rather enjoyed the silence, away from the Sinbad's unceasing hums and groans and ticks. Hey, Caïs, reach out if you need me, but don't be alarmed if I'm not chatty. Roger that, Zora, Caïs said. Enjoy the solitude. Caïs understood. Caïs always understood. The tranquility lasted barely an hour. Zora, we've had a burst of pings from nearby relays, Caïs said. Someone is trying to triangulate our position. I glanced at the processor status on my helmet's heads-up display. The Sinbad's tanks were only half full. How much time do we have? It would take a long-range Navy cutter on a 2G high burn around five days to reach us from circum-Neptunian space, Thais said. Not nearly enough time, not for what I had in mind. Alone on Monquez, an idea teased me. Perhaps not so much an idea as a daydream, one with gaps as massive as black holes. Once back in the Sinbad, Wardani helped me out of the suit, followed me to the gallery, and watched me guzzle water and shiver in my sweat-soaked underlayer. I felt numb, in a daze, without clear recollection of how I brought the matter processor back. That's how people die, Mama always said, working outside on autopilot like a zombie. She never mentioned people still died outside, even when fully alert. I had to figure that one out for myself. I looked up to see Wardani watching me expectantly. Care to share what you have in mind, Zora? Caïs said. I groaned, sounding more like Mama than I cared to admit. It was you who gave me the idea, Caïs. Suddenly famished, I rummaged through the food pouches and found a lonesome macaroni and cheese, drowning in a sea of Mama's salmon. What was the point? She couldn't eat it any more, and someone had to. I grabbed one and ripped off the seal. While I waited for the temperature strip to turn red, I told them everything. Caïs told me bluntly it'd never work. Wardani just shook his head and went back to his work. "'What other choices do we have?' I demanded. "'We can get as far away from here as we can before they arrive,' Caïs said, as if it was so obvious it didn't require spelling out. "'And give up Monquez? "'Would you rather give up your freedom and ours instead?' Caïs asked reasonably. After some debate, Caïs reluctantly admitted my plan could work, in theory, subject to verifying the wild assumptions I made. When I tracked down Wardani, he told me to do what I thought was right, which was no help at all. Having tipped our hand, we foreclosed the possibility of leaving Monquez hidden where it was to call upon once we'd figured out what to do with it. The only thing left to do now was follow Mama's lead whenever she found herself in a bind. Throw ourselves into the fray and find a way to turn the odds ever so slightly in our favor. I might have been legally an adult the day I turned 16, but I wasn't naive to how everyone else would see us. A little brown girl with only a hyper-gorilla and a semi-derelict ship's sentient proxy to call upon as she attempted to commandeer an ice moonlet in full view of the entire system. They'll think it absurd. They'll think I'm a joke. They'll think they can outsmart or intimidate me. I meant to prove them wrong on all counts. I suited up in the main hold with Wardani's help before we both turned our attention to getting him into his suit 
without disturbing the adhesive patch he'd carefully affixed to the inside of the breastplate. Once Wardani sealed the neck ring, I slathered quick-set epoxy over the outside of the rip. On its own, the epoxy wouldn't withstand the pressure differential any more than the tape could. But with both sides of the rip sealed, I hope the suit would hold long enough for Wardani to help me move Monquez out of its orbit. It was a big ask, which I thought long and hard before making. I knew that once I did, Wardani would jump at the opportunity as he did. I had to push aside the nagging feeling that, should something happen to Wardani, I'd never forgive myself. We didn't need to equip Monquez with primary propulsion. Sinbad would provide that once we were in open space. As far as spaceships went, the resulting monstrosity wouldn't be fast, virtually impossible for anything of Monquez's mass, but we didn't need High Delta V. To demonstrate control, we needed maneuvering thrusters, which, unlike the Waldo Arms controller, were simple enough for the Sinbad's manufactory to produce. They didn't even have to be all that efficient, not when they had practically endless propellant. The matte black cubes were typical of printed machinery. Mama never relied on the Sinbad's manufactory for anything vital, preferring to buy precision-produced parts whenever the Sinbad was in port instead. The manufactory was a last resort, she'd say. Good enough for emergencies only. What could be more pressing than survival? The primary lock opened to a rush of memories, of easing the Eva rig with Mama's inert body strapped to it inside, and the frantic hope she might still be alive inside the self-healing suit. Wardani's hand on my shoulder snapped me out of the memory with a worried look on his face. Are you okay, Zora? he asked over the person-to-person channel. I'm fine. How's your suit holding up? I asked. Wardani gave me a gloved two-thumbs-up. Had there been an issue with Wardani's suit's integrity, Kais, who was monitoring our vitals, would have shut the airlock and immediately repressurized the hold. Ready? I turned to Wardani, who stepped into the Eva rig, booted once, and pushed off, trailing behind a woven bundle of nanocarbon cables, terminating in a winch arrangement bolted to a bulkhead. I watched him recede, falling towards Monquez, which seemed further away than I remembered from my previous trip down. Ten minutes later, Wardani grunted with exertion. Tether secure! I fed one of the thrusters into the winch and launched it down the tether. It slid, nearly frictionlessly, towards Wardani. Got it, Mordani said a few minutes later. Zora, I know you want to take it slow for Wardani's sake, but I suggest you pick up the pace, Caius said. The longer Wardani is outside, the higher the risk of his suit failing. I glanced at my heads-up display. Caius had used a person-to-person channel. Roger that, I replied on the same channel, before switching to the common one. Here they come, Wardani. The remaining thrusters, all fifteen of them, slid down the tether one after another, spaced thirty seconds apart, like a string of black pearls soon to gird two of Monquez's latitudes. The remaining thrusters, all fifteen of them, slid down the tether one after another, spaced thirty seconds apart, like a string of black pearls soon to gird two of Monquez's latitudes, halfway between a notional equator and its corresponding poles. Once Wardani confirmed received the last thruster, I launched out of the hold. At a safe distance, I engaged the rig's thrusters to take me the rest of the way down. I didn't protest when Wardani reached out 
grabbed the bottom of the rig and eased me down to the ground. I'll take the northern ring, you the south, I said unnecessarily, just to hear him speak, having already gone over the plan many times before we left the Sinbad. Right, boss, Mordani said, grinning through his visor, then grabbed two of the thrusters, one in each hand, and pushed off towards the other side of Monquez, twenty kilometers away, his graceful lopes belying his imposing bulk. In the feeble gravity field, the thrusters didn't weigh much, but their inertia and momentum were undiminished. One wrong move could see either of us badly hurt or worse hurled off into space, lost in the rocks-strewn skies above. Over the next six hours, Caiz stayed in constant contact, guiding the placement of each thruster. I'd secured seven of the thrusters and was halfway to the location of the last one when Caiz interrupted. Zora, Wardani's suit telemetry stopped, but just before it did, he was losing pressure, sending you his last location now. I jumped into the rig, kicked off the surface, and fired the thrusters towards the coordinates when Caiz chimed in again. Zora, you're moving too fast. If you wreck, there will be no one to help you, let alone Wardani. Please, slow down. Overriding my instinct, I reversed thrusters briefly to cut my delta V. The seconds passed excruciatingly slow, until I spied Wardani's form sprawled on his back on the dust-covered ice. No, 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 no! I screamed as I closed the distance between us. As soon as I was within reach, I dropped to the surface, freed myself from the rig's harness, and loped to Wardani's side. He was unconscious. A thin jet of gas vented from under the edge of the epoxy covering the rip on his breastplate, crystallizing in the frigid vacuum. I took an adhesive patch out of a pocket and slapped it on top. It wouldn't fix the breach, but I hoped it'd slow the leak. Why hadn't he done that himself? Wardani! I shook him, but he didn't respond. I unhooked the oxygen hose from the valve in my suit, maxed out the flow rate, and connected it to Wardani's suit's auxiliary input. Zora, what are you doing? Kais said. I'm reading a drop in your oxygen levels. The epoxy failed, I explained. No idea how long he kept going before he fainted. Must have turned off his suit's transponder. I'm feeding him oxygen. I'll never understand primates, gorilla or human, Kais said. Please be careful not to lose consciousness, too. I won't, I said. There'd be no one to rescue us. We'd both die on the world lit that had the potential to transform our lives. The big oaf was trying to help. How's killing himself helpful, Caiz said. You're right, I said. You don't understand. I disapproved of what Wardani did, but I understood the impulse to do what you think is best for your loved ones, your family. It was one thing to leave them behind when Mama was alive, knowing I could always return and find them waiting for me with smiles and open arms. Shattering the only family I had left, however, was an entirely different matter. I'm bringing him up now. I released Wardani from his rig's harness and plugged the air supply back into my suit. I could have waited for Wardani to regain consciousness, but I had no way of knowing how long that'd take. I had to act while I still had enough oxygen for the both of us. I loped back to the rig and secured myself into the harness, then plodded back to Wardani. I leaned over until I was practically lying on top of him and secured the two harnesses together with every available strap on them both. Heaving, I managed to get us far enough off the ground to engage the thrusters and take off. The initial burst 
sent us into an erratic tumble that almost saw us crash before I managed to stabilize the rig. Swapping the air back and forth between Mordani's suit and mine, we made for the Sinbad's gaping main airlock. It was down to me now to save us, and I didn't know if I had it in me. The grip Mama gained struggling for survival and largely shielded me from suddenly seemed less punishment meted out by an uncaring universe and more an accolade and education with which it favored only a few. Rardani opened his eyes a slit, groaned weakly, and promptly screwed them shut again. A few attempts later, he turned his head and took in his surroundings. He tried to sit up, only to tug on the strap securing him to the med bay table. I released him. Welcome back. What happened? Wardani asked, sitting up, his voice more gravelly than usual. Your stubbornness almost killed you, that's what! Your stubbornness almost killed you, that's what! I snapped, my anger rising. Taken aback, Wardani frowned in confusion. It took a while, but I could see him slowly remembering. How did I get back here? I carried you, you... You... I stammered, lost for words. Hot tears surprised me and rolled down my face. I held tightly onto Wardani, my hands barely reaching around his sides. You almost died. I'm sorry, Zora, Wardani said, his big hands gently patting my back as I unloaded, heaving on his shoulder. I was trying to help. A while later, once my sudden outpouring of relief subsided, Wardani asked, "'What happened to the thrusters?' "'I went back down and finished installing the last two. I said, skipping over the agonizing decision to leave him unconscious in the med bay and go. "'Cais reports all sixteen are more or less where they're supposed to be, which leaves one last thing left to do.' Wardani nodded and tried to force a smile. "'Land Sinbad.' "'It was pretty obvious once it occurred to me, as most solutions are in hindsight.' Claiming Monquez through ordinary mineral rights wasn't possible, owing to its composition. Other than abandoning it for others to profit from, we had one other tenuous possibility that required a deep dive into resource and prospecting law from Caiz. Everything is bolted down and we're both strapped, I said from the control capsule. It was going to be weird having gravity aboard the Sinbad full time, no matter how feeble once it's anchored to Monquez. Mama loved living in zero-G, resenting every moment she had to spend in a gravity field, natural or simulated, and I wondered what she'd make of me turning her ship into a building. Wardani and I watched as the Sinbad pitched to match trajectory with in-motion Monquez. Since we moved Monquez out of its hiding place, Caiz detected at least eight ships on high burn headed for us. From their drive signatures, once they turned around and started decelerating, Caiz guessed at least a couple were U.N. Navy heavy cruisers, while the other could have equally been corporate militia or pirates. The Sinbad had to secure anchors deep into Monquez to claim it as our ablative shield, and we had to do so before any of the others, U.N., corporate, or pirate, were close enough to contest such claims. The law provided that a spacefaring ship may be equipped with an ice crest that acted as an ablative shield, implicitly when traveling at a decent fraction of the speed of light. 
though that was nowhere in the language of the legislation itself. Crucially, it didn't specify how a ship may acquire such a shield, nor the sort of ship that may be so equipped, nor the permissible ratio of shield mass to ship tear mass, nor the type of space the ship traversed, in system, interstellar, or even intergalactic, to be permitted the use of an ice shield. I suppose the corporate lawyers who drafted the law for the UN thought all these were rather obvious assumptions. Pulling one over on the oligarchs made us overnight system-wide celebrities. Though the UN rushed to close the loopholes as soon as we exposed them with our claim, the powers that be decided to forego making the amendments retrospective, letting us get away with our exploit, rather than risk agitating the masses in favor of the underdogs at a time when there were many more underdogs than there were oligarchs. The tent standoff lasted eight months. Each time one party tried to forcibly pry Monquez away from us, the other two intervened to thwart them. Caiz engaged them all in continuous negotiations to sell them Simbad, some or all of the ice, futures on the same, and so on. Caiz quoted Mama, saying, if your enemies are haggling, they're not shooting, or something to that effect. It sounded like something Mama might have said. Have you given much thought to what comes next, Zora? Caiz asked. You could expand into an empire, or retire at seventeen. I eased the stainless steel urn from its webbing and headed for the nearest airlock. It feels like we're already where we're meant to be. Ordani saw the urn in my arms and raised his eyebrows. I think it's time to lay Mama to rest, I explained. You know where home is? Ordani asked. I nodded, smiling. It's right here. Oh, no, Caius said. You're not clogging my filters. No, silly, I said, suiting up. Out there, a Monquez. Mama couldn't tell us where home was, because that's something we get to decide, I said, with echoes of that earlier flash of insight. Home for Mama was wherever we were, all three of us, our family. And that's Monquez now. It's where we belong. Does this mean you've made up your mind? Caiz asked. I think so, I said. All I ever wanted was the freedom to shape my future, make my own rules. But none of it would mean anything if I couldn't share it with my family. Now Monquez makes it possible to not have to choose. It's time to lay Mama to rest. Can I come? Wardani asked, holding the helmet of his brand new suit. I grinned at him. Mama wouldn't have wanted it any other way. A few minutes later, Caiz watched through Sinbad's sensors as Wardani and I hopped carefully to a nearby shallow crater. Under Neptune's brilliant blue thumbnail-sized marble, I unscrewed the urn's lid and let the ashes float gently to the ground. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ramiz, thank you so much. Wow, what a story. Rock hoppers. There you go. And Christina, what a narration, man. Honestly, thank you. Indeed. That was just... Fantastic. Just took us away there. Took us away to escapism. Now, our very own, yes, our very own, Amy H. Sturgis. Ames. Hello, my friends. It's time for another look back at genre history. And first, I'd like to wish you a happy new year. I hope your 2023 is off to a great start. And second, I'd like to mention something I haven't brought up in a while, and that is everyone is invited to check out my website, amyhsturgis.com. On my site, among other things, I have a page for podcasting. And while I do note my interviews and narrations I've done for other podcasts, I, of course, have a big section devoted to Starship Sofa. And there I have listed... With each subject, the looking back at genre history segments I have done over the years. And so if you're looking for a particular segment on a particular topic, you can find that pretty easily. And you can also follow the links back to the specific show on which that segment appeared. So I hope that is useful to you and would invite you to check that out. Today... I want to mark a milestone, and I want to say up front, there's no way that I can possibly do justice to this topic in the time allotted for this segment, but I do want to note this big important anniversary and also just give a shout out to how important this particular work is. So let me get started with my little tribute here. On January 2nd, 1978, the first episode of a new science fiction series aired on BBC One. And that means that January 2023 marks the 45th anniversary of the show. And its many afterlives in novels, fan fiction, audio dramas, and other media. That's right, folks. Blake's Seven is 45 years old. Blake's Seven is a British science fiction show... Produced by the BBC, there were four 13-episode series broadcast between 1978 and 1981. Its creator, Terry Nation, also wrote the first series. Produced by David Maloney, who produced the first three series. Veer Lorimer produced series four. And the script producer throughout its run was Chris Boucher, who also wrote nine of the Blake Seven episodes. A short aside here, Christopher Franklin Boucher was born in 1943, and he passed on the 11th of December of 2022. So that is a recent loss. 
He was a British television screenwriter, script editor, novelist, known for frequent contributions to science fiction, including working on the series Doctor Who and writing four Doctor Who novels, and also his involvement with Blake Seven and Star Cops, among other series. I should also note that another recent loss for the Blake's Seven community is actor Stephen Grief, who was born in 1944 and passed on the 23rd of December 2022. He was known particularly for his role as Travis in Blake Seven. Now, the main character for the first two series of Blake's Seven was Raj Blake, portrayed by Gareth Thomas. I should note that the seven characters who make up Blake's Seven changed over time. There were always seven main characters, but that dynamic shifted throughout time, including, for that matter, Blake himself, because the main character of the second two series was Kerr Avon, formerly Blake's, hmm, what should I say, frenemy, portrayed by Paul Darrow. So, Blake's Seven, in my mind, is kind of the anti-Star Trek. If Star Trek was, as creator Gene Roddenberry first described it, wagon train to the stars, then the British series Blake's Seven was, as creator Terry Nation called it, the dirty dozen in space. The hero, Blake, is really the only person on the ship who isn't a criminal, although he was framed to be one. Everyone else, the thieves, smugglers, and murderers who make up the band of rebels led by Blake, well, they're sort of anti-heroes. But the Federation, unlike in Star Trek, the symbol of good and hope, is the bad guy in Blake Seven. The Federation is a tyrannical authoritarian regime, and we are meant to identify with and to root for the band of anti-heroes who come together to resist it. Now, I have to veer off into the autobiographical for a moment. I hope you'll hang in there with me. But this is a part of fan history I think gets lost sometimes in the internet era. I am older than the internet. (laughs) And I was a fan of Blake's Seven from my teens on even though it was quite some time before I actually got to watch Blake's Seven. I met Blake's Seven first through fanzines. I was a consumer of fan fiction from my early teens, starting with Star Trek and then moving on to multimedia fanzines and fanzines about other works. And I discovered here and there in multimedia fanzines stories about Blake Seven was really taken by these fascinating characters who were good guys doing good and bad guys doing good. And some pretty remarkable women characters I would put under that bad guys and good guys umbrella. And so I read stories about Blake Seven, then I went to fanzines specifically devoted to Blake Seven and devoured those. So my first introduction to these characters was through the lens of fan creators who were celebrating their favorite characters and adding to adventures that I hadn't encountered yet. Fortunately, I soon found 
the novels for Blake 7 as well. I'm looking at my little pile of what Tony would call tatty paperbacks right here. The first novel that came out was Blake 7, written by Trevor Hoyle and Terry Nation, published in 1978, and it novelized the first series episodes The Way Back, Spacefall, Cygnus Alpha, and Time Squad. The title in the U.S., which is the version I have, is Blake's Seven, Their First Adventure. Then there were more books in the series that novelized episodes, Blake Seven Project Avalon and Blake Seven Scorpio Attack. I had all of those and got to experience the episodes through the novelizations. Then followed the authentic sequel to the great TV series, that's the subtitle, Afterlife by Tony Atwood. That came out in 1982, got that as well. I also got... Tony Atwood's Blake Seven, The Program Guide, the definitive handbook to the BBC TV series, which was thrilling to have because then I could see the larger shape of the series and a list of all of its episodes, as well as Avon, A Terrible Aspect by Paul Darrow. So that was a separate novel about the character Avon, written by the actor who portrayed Avon fascinating stuff. I then finally did get to see the show. <laughs> it made its way to the U.S., I believe in 1986, although it was not available where I was for a time after that. But fortunately, it most certainly is today. In fact, in 2020, it became available on the U.K. streaming service BritBox. And just recently, in fact, a year ago, this past year, my husband and I went back and rewatched every single episode in order, and it was glorious. Blake 7 wasn't the only series I first came to know through fan fiction and publications, but it was one of the most important in my world because of the anti-hero darker, dystopian kind of storytelling it represented, and I was very intrigued by that. I'm also looking here, I've made a stack of works <laughs> that I had collected about Blake 7. I'm looking at Blake 7, The Inside Story by Joe Nazero and Sheila Wells, another very helpful guide. And I'd like to share here part of the introduction to a 2000 McFarland critical guide, a more scholarly work, called A History and Critical Analysis of Blake Seven, the 1978-1981 British Television Space Adventure by John Kenneth Muir. And I thought this introduction really uh, connected well to some of the points I wanted to make. I'm not going to read the whole thing, just an excerpt here, but wanted to share that. Again, this is John Kenneth Muir. Quote, the most memorable science fiction programs in television history have often been those which deliberately modify classic stories or myths and reiterate them in new and exciting contexts, frequently the outer space arena. The long-honored genre standard-bearer, Star Trek, 1966-1969, is an extension of American pioneer and imperialist ideals and was even referred to by its creator, Gene Roddenberry, as Wagon Train to the Stars. Erwin Allen's Lost in Space, 1965-1968, is a futuristic retelling of the Swiss family Robinson, with a family, again, the Robinsons, 
marooned on a far-off planet rather than an isolated island. Even the much-maligned Glenn Larson saga Battlestar Galactica, 1978-1979, is a quasi-biblical epic in its vision of the human race's cosmic exodus and passage through a red space field, a galactic equivalent of the Red Sea. Similarly, Terry Nation's unique British entry in the science fiction television sweepstakes, Blake 7, 1978-1981, is a futuristic accumulation and translation of classic literary film and television traditions. It is part Robin Hood, with its band of futuristic outlaws facing the overwhelming power of an evil galactic empire, and part The Seven Samurai, 1954, or The Magnificent Seven, 1960 in its thematic predisposition to dramatize heroes defending the innocent from conquering forces, both alien and human. Unlike Robin Hood, however, Blake Seven's television Avengers are noticeably not merry men. On the contrary, the heroes of Blake Seven are depicted in this four-year, 52-episode BBC series as a desperate, fatalistic, and determinedly pragmatic band. Although Blake is a man of honor, his mind starts to break down after the death of a follower in the episode Pressure Point, and his continued failure to defeat the mighty Terran Federation. Blake's right-hand man, Avon, is even less traditional. Equipped with a razor-sharp intellect and an instinct for self-preservation, Avon chooses to accompany Blake on his cosmic quest only because it suits his purposes. In the words of Creator Nation, his television series is not about outer space or alien civilizations at all. Instead, it concerns, quote, the little guy against City Hall, end quote. The heroes, including a loyal everyman, a beautiful smuggler, and a common thief, are thus defined in totally realistic and believable non-superhuman terms, end quote. I think this touches on a lot of what is fascinating about Blake Seven. And it is a character-driven show and an idea-driven show. And the notion of the little folks, the every people, the little guy against City Hall, to go back to Terry Nation's quote, seems to be ever green, ever relevant today, particularly the realization that perhaps the government <laughs> you find yourself under is the bad guy. In fact, that creeping authoritarianism is a problem, that the future isn't necessarily a utopian image of progress and evolution, but perhaps a pattern repeating that is not moving in the direction you would like to see it go, but in fact following a pattern with some pretty dark implications. And so this is a hopeful work, but it is also a work that we keep returning to. And it's also a haunting work. I should add that its final episode is not just famous, it's infamous. It first aired on December 21st, 1981, and as a Christmas gift or a holiday gift of really <laughs> dubious taste, it left the entire show on a kind of cliffhanger. This episode, Blake, that ended the Blake's Seven run. In the final moments of the episode, it appears that 
Avon has turned on this not-so-merry band, has murdered Blake, who returns scarred and tortured, and perhaps has murdered everyone else as well. This is sort of left up in the air. There's a volley of fire, and clearly some people are caught in that fire. And it does seem like a kind of death by suicide for a series, but it also seems like a cliffhanger because there is more to come that really didn't come in the series itself, although has been wrestled with in, as I've already pointed out, novels and sequels brought about through audio plays and fan fiction as well. I wanted to give the series a heartfelt shout-out because its story has outlived and grown far beyond a four-year television series. It has inspired generations of fan creators and professional creators who have continued to add to the story. It touched me all the way across the pond long before I could actually see it, but now fortunately it is available rather easily in a lot of places, and if you haven't encountered Blake 7, I highly recommend it. And if you'll indulge me, I'd like to add one last autobiographical note. Many, many, many moons ago, I was fortunate to collaborate with a dear friend, great colleague, and true mentor, Dr. Cynthia W. Walker, on an essay for an academic anthology called Common Sense, Intelligence as Presented on Popular Television. And the essay that Cynthia Walker and I co-wrote was Sexy Nerds, Ilya Kuryakin, Mr. Spock, and the Image of the Cerebral Hero in Television Drama. That was, in fact, quite a science fiction-heavy essay. And there was a whole section on the lasting impact of Kerr Avon on fandom. We called him the Mad Bad Cerebral Hero, this computer programmer who becomes a convict who becomes a rebel, but he's a Byronic character who is self-centered and focused on his own self-protection in many ways, in part because he has been betrayed and hurt so many times, and he was considered to be a kind of breakout character for the series. In fact, we noted that despite the fact that Blake 7 introduced more than a dozen main characters over its four-year run, one fan clearinghouse noted in 2005 that more Blake's Seven fan stories had been published about Avon than about all of the other series characters combined. I think there's still a lot to learn and to say about Blake's Seven and its appeal as a dystopian story, as the vehicle for some fascinating characters and some big questions about resistance and about power. And there are always, it seems, perpetually rumors of the possibility that Blake 7 will return in one format or another. But for now, I just want to say, happy 45th, Blake 7. If you haven't been exposed to Blake 7, or if you haven't seen it recently, go back and check it out again, or discover it for the first time. It is truly an important part of genre history. 
a story of characters who sometimes are trying to save the universe and sometimes are trying to save themselves and sometimes are just trying to survive another day. Characters who have inherited a future that isn't as bright and shiny as other futures have been depicted. A dark and scary and treacherous future, but not one devoid of hope. That's an important point. I do hope you enjoyed this segment, and I look forward to joining you again very soon for something completely different when we get together again to take another look back at genre history. Thank you. Ames, what can I say there? Big, huge thank you. Thank you indeed. Big hug for the new year. Thank you, lass. Well, that is show 2000... 2000. <laughs> back in time. 704. Yes, big thank you to Ramiz and Christina and Amy. It is fantastic. If you want, now, a little shake up there, you know, if you want to support her, pop over to Patreon. There's links on the front of the website or one-time donation or donation through PayPal. We have to keep going. Yes, that's the most important thing. And I put out a little kind of shout, but, you know, it was a, a few come back to us, but if you're kind, of, kind enough to support the show, that would be fantastic. Until next time, just like to say, good night from me. Thank you for listening.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.